for people that are thinking futuristically, and I think that's what's going on here, to me, it's all about scale. It's about accumulating enough of these batteries in each different section of the grid where you could deploy them in the future because this is going to be a market. It's yeah. going to come back again, whether it's frequency regulation or demand. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangin. So let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host, the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to have my co-host, Nate Giovanelli. He's the head of business development at Enterflow and owner of Giovanelli LLC. If you haven't listened to his podcast previously, he's been on the Solar Maverick podcast, I think now six times, maybe. I'm glad to have you again. I feel like I should have you more than every few months. Welcome to the podcast, my co-host. See, co-host, I didn't say guest. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy coming and it's, I'm still getting used to not having a microphone, how this thing evolved from, there used to be a mic, then there was a mic and a headset, and now we're just in a room talking. It's kind of crazy to me how advanced things have gotten in a very short period of time. The first podcast interview that I was interviewed five years ago was actually in a studio, a recording studio for a Harlem news radio channel. So it's interesting as the technology advances, it's interesting actually how I found out about it. I actually went to TwitchCom. It was like the younger people telling me, hey, you should get your Solar Maverick podcast on Twitch. And why are you holding all these microphones it's so heavy? That H6 handy recorder is now like one fifth the size as it was three or four years ago. So it's amazing to see how technology just advances exponentially. And we're not just seeing that with the recording and microphone, but we're actually seeing this at solar, right? All the innovation that's happening. I can't even keep track of all the innovation that's happening just because it's so much and it's just amazing to see. Wanted to get your perspective on what you're seeing at Enterflow and lowering the customer acquisition costs with software and SPI and was obviously recently, we're now at the end of the year. Want to get some of your end of the year predictions. See. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's what I call it the solar coaster, I guess, which is a little bit cliche, but everything's super dynamic. I was talking to somebody who's new to the industry yesterday. I took some time to do a favor for a friend and they were asking me if there's one piece of advice you could give to someone that's new in the industry, what would it be? Yes. Got to be able to pivot. You got to stay agile and nimble because it's an ever-changing market. And you're right. The technology has moved really fast and maybe not so much as the panels, you know, they just get a little bit bigger and therefore higher wattage, maybe a little bit more efficient. Just all the other things that are going on. And I believe that really it's probably goes back to Google and what they did with the Nest revolutionized the fact that now people understand and appreciate energy. I don't think prior to that, a lot of thought was given from consumers into what's running and what's not running. And now that customers are aware, it's enabling this whole next level of products. And smart light bulb, sure, that's one small part. But thinking about having loads all the time from things that are plugged in that you don't use or just managing your EV, right? I mean, as people shift toward electric vehicles and really the electrification of everything, I think there's more emphasis in how they're using their power, which is really opening up the market. And it's also driving adoption of solar. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Like all these things that you're talking about is happening kind of a confluence at the same time. Maybe we're starting to not be the solar coaster anymore. I mean, yes, you have to be agile. But when I think of solar coaster, I think of we need incentives basically to keep the market going. Once there's no incentives, obviously 
you still have to be very agile because things, as you're saying, is changing and adapting quickly. But then it just makes it so much easier to get projects done in a more efficient time. Obviously, the IRA has a lot of extra incentives, but imagine if you didn't need those incentives, which partly I start feeling that, you know, certain parts or most parts of the country eventually might not need the incentives to be able to make projects pencil. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. But everything, when you really think about energy, like what aspect of energy, take renewables out, sure. doesn't have some sort of incentive. That's a good point. I'm tired of hearing people say, so renewable energy gets too many incentives, but people don't realize any energy has incentives by the government. It used to be through MLIP. I know we talked about this a little bit, but the master limited partnership structure that helps dirty get, you know, dirty energy or non-renewable. So it's pretty interesting. Well, wars have fallen over oil. I mean, if you really yeah, want to be realistic. And, for sure. And there's definitely tons of subsidies if you follow the money that flow into that industry. I mean, they out lobby us. It's like 8,000. Oh, I know. Yeah. Uh, which is why you should be a member of CF if you're not. What I want to ask you then, because yeah. and we've never talked about this. Sure. No oh, wow. When you say subsidies, let's yeah. dive in a little. Okay. Is net metering a subsidy? I don't think net metering is a subsidy because it's needed to be able to develop renewable energy and creating the grid to be distributed and to pay accordingly for that. And resilient is worth whatever net metering incentive is. I got involved a little late in the game, but I had the opportunity to go down to Tallahassee Almost a year ago, I think it was February of last year or maybe March, but went down when Florida was utilities were looking to squash net metering. And I was sitting there talking to some of the other lobbyists. And I said to them, I was like, where do we get on this train where every arrow that's getting fired at us as an industry is that net metering is a subsidy everyone's paying for. The oil companies. But if you want to change the narrative, stop referring to it as a subsidy. A subsidy for sure. Renewable lobbyists are sitting there talking that it's a subsidy. Now, some of them did think that it is. I mean, it depends, right? I think the answer is, like all things, it's probably, it's complicated. Sure. Because in reality, Florida was trying to solve for something that's way in the future, getting to like 8 to 10% penetration. By penetration, I mean 8 to 10% of energy being consumed by homeowners is from solar. And at that point, is net metering a subsidy? And the answer is maybe, but right now it's certainly not. There's not enough people on the grid. And when you look at even the rate cases where utilities go file to say, hey, we need their regulated monopoly, right? So people are on the air, obviously. And they go and they have to make a rate case, basically say, hey, we got to raise our rates to get our return. And they go to the board, the PUC, whatever, the uh-huh. board of public commission or whatever it is in that state. And they say, hey, here's all the things that are causing us to have to raise our rates so we can keep our profit margin, right? And it's there was a lot. I don't even want to miscite it. Like I told you, I didn't bring notes and I don't like to throw too many numbers out unless- uh, Fake news. We're going to get Elon to confirm. (laughs) The short of it is that the utilities in Florida, just that year in that window, when they went to state all the reasons they needed to increase rates, solar wasn't one of them. But then they're lobbying to the House and the Senate and the government saying, all these people that are adopting solar are shifting the cost to people who don't adopt solar. And I found it extremely telling. I mean, it's common sense for those that, that want to see it. Even non-biased person who's not in the industry or in any way can yeah. see, well, why wouldn't they have listed that as a cost if now they're lobbying to get rid of net metering saying that solar's costing them money? 
Well, just put it back into the rate. If it's not going back into the rate, how is solar raising the cost for low income? And, you know, I'm pretty passionate about low income. And I was looking at some research, I actually just posted on LinkedIn. So this Uh is kind of, I wasn't even planning on getting into this, but just through the course of our conversation, they looked at 2.8 million homes and a majority, they looked at income bands. The biggest adopter of solar by household income in 2021 was fifty to $100,000. Okay, you want to break that down? Well, the average household in the U.S. in 2021 was somewhere around 77000 sure. or 71000 somewhere in that range. So that means we're hitting the median, like yeah. the middle, right? By the way, if you look at the biggest barrier to homeownership, I always, or to solar rather, I always say is home ownership. Yeah. Is owning a home. And it's getting harder and harder in this country. For sure. So when you look at the average household income for people who are owner occupied in their home, it's even higher. Yeah. So we are hitting with solar a big swath of people, a majority of uh-huh. people. I mean, if you want to even call middle class, you know, I don't know what that exact definition is anymore. Yeah. But it does help folks that are in the lower end, which makes sense because ultimately they want to save money. And everything's set up where you can get solar on your home and pay less per month in a majority of states, if not all of them. There's some that don't have net meters sure. so that makes it difficult. But you can put solar in your home and pay less per month than you would otherwise pay the utility. Uh-huh. So tell me how it's only for rich people. In the beginning, because of how the ITC structure or the federal investment tax credit, you could say you need a certain income level in order to digest the tax credits. Certainly, but also outside of that, there's third-party ownership. And you know how I feel about that. So you can get at least have somebody else absorb that. You have no cost out of pocket. You're guaranteed to save money, at least in year one. So I think there's a lot of ways to do this. And, you know, if you really cut through the research, there's a decent swath of people in the lower end, too, that get solar. So it's not like it just stops at that range. There's certainly people on the lower end. But I think the argument would be from the other side, because there's always multiple ways to look at data, is there's percentage-wise less people that are in that lower bucket that have solar as a percentage. So in other words, if there's 18% of people in that $50,000 and less household income, but only 8% have solar, what should be 18%? Sure. So I think that's how people look at the numbers. But ultimately, one of the biggest detractors or biggest things that either the media or Congress or whatever will say is that solar is a luxury of the rich. And I'm not sure where this came from. Maybe the very early adopters, you could say the same thing with large screen TVs, right? (laughs) The early adopters, I didn't get one for what, 200 bucks? We've come a long way. And I don't think that's a fair statement anymore. So if you believe that Net metering is not a subsidy, which I don't think it is either. In fact, again, there's research from utilities out there in the Carolinas that show that having a certain amount of solar on the grid is actually a good thing. I'm not talking about intangibles. I mean, it actually lowers the cost for people. So I think it's a complex issue that people don't fully understand. And you could argue it on both sides. But ultimately, I agree. I don't think net metering is a subsidy. I do think that solar touches all income levels. I do think that it's a necessary part of the energy mix. I do think there's more that we can continue to do as an industry for that low middle income segment, but I don't think they're completely ignored. One of the things we can get into later whenever you want is the number one question I've gotten in the last 
two months, hands down. I get multiple calls a week, either Amaflow or my own business about what do you think the impact of rising interest rates is going to have? Sure. Is it going to kill solar? I get that all the time. Yeah. What do you think? It's not going to kill solar. I mean, obviously it's going to increase costs because of financing, but I think in two or three years, rates will go down. There's also other cost savings that we're finding in the whole value matrix. So I think it'll be offset by something else. I mean, I'm looking at from a, from a project finance perspective, not on residential, but commercial, industrial, and utility scale. Yes. And I, my expertise at this point is, is more in residential. I certainly skew that way, although I've developed over 100 megawatts of commercial projects. And I agree. I mean, look, when you look at the value stack, certainly on the residential side, I think there's going to be a shift back toward third-party ownership, which is leases and PPAs. Yes, I do. Now, is it going to be dramatic? Time will tell. I'm not sure it's going to get back to 50%. Sure. Like in its heyday, like Solar City, back in the early stomping grounds. In the residential segment, leases made up for, we'll just call it TPO, third-party ownership. So TPO made up about 75%. Well, 2021, it was under 25%. Yeah. Because now loans are predominant. Well, that makes sense when you can get money for a very low interest rate. Plus, although it's unsecuritized, it's not a risky asset. People pay their energy bill. Especially if you're saving money. There's no incentive. But that's an interesting point because I worked on some of the solar city residential portfolio deals like 10 to 11 years ago. We were saying that same point that like energy bills are one of your largest costs, but it was still very difficult back then, like I'm talking about 11 years ago, to get banks comfortable with it. Now it's just everyone's comfortable with it, which is great, right? Because that lowers the financing costs. That allows more penetration of solar because you're able, residential customers who want to own it, instead of doing a PPA, they could get a favorable interest rate on it. And obviously we've been in a historic low rate environment until the past year. The dark side of that is that you're paying for that interest rate because it is an unsecuritized loan. It's not like a mortgage where if you don't pay, they come and repossess it. Theoretically, they could come repossess it, but the panels are worth a fraction of what they were when they were first put on to somebody else, right? For sure. So that's what makes it more of an expensive loan. So what happens is consumer... They compare interest rates to their car, to their house. Those are tangible assets, not to like a personal loan. Like it's more equivalent to like putting on a deck or putting in a swimming pool. So the interest rates are much higher. But what the industry does to get that interest rate more in line with what you would pay for your mortgage is Uh you buy points effectively for a dealer. So the average dealer fee saves 30% of the project Uh cost. They're taking that 30% and you're paying that as a customer. Many times it's not disclosed, so you don't know you're paying it. And in exchange, you're getting a lower interest rate, which it used to be like a 0.9 or 1.9. Now with the dramatic rise, it's probably closer to 3.9 or 4.9. Because again, it's mimicking to the consumer, it's mimicking what their mortgage would be. But they are paying for it. So in reality, the best way to finance one of these systems would be like a home equity line of credit because now it's backed by your mortgage. So you have equity in your home now you're getting that lower rate, rate not sure. the dealer fee. It makes a lot of sense. It's also tied in with home value and other things. So that makes a lot of sense. I think loans took over because not only the low interest rate and some of the large TPO companies that went out, but also you can do a loan in every state. Now, this is the same thing. I love talking to a few <laughs> people about this who are passionate the other way, because back in the old solar city days, 
you could charge a 6% escalator. No lease company does anymore. It's generally 2.9. Sure. So they're like, well, look at that. The market was still finding its way, right? I think 2.9 is reasonable. If you consider over 25 years, it means your rate's going to double. You just do simple math. So you can take that note out. And if you're a really good negotiator, you can get a lease at 0% sure. escalator. You might pay a higher starting point. Yes. Kind of full circle is why I don't think interest rates are going to certainly squash residential solars. A couple of reasons. One, I think the margin is going to come out of the very high sales commissions. The red line, as they call it, or the cost of built solar is already come down as low as it can with equipment costs and everything, even at scale, I believe. So I think there's still this huge customer acquisition cost and exorbitant sales commissions that get paid. And when the dealer fee can only go so high or it becomes pressure. Sure. So what happens is the dealer fees kind of say capped at that 30% and the interest rates go up. If the customer still wants to save $50, that means you have to sell them the system of $50 a month. You have to sell them the system for less because yeah. they have the higher interest rate. Uh-huh. So where does that money come from? Well, it can't come from the installer. They're already at their minimum with making maybe a 10% margin and spare. The equipment can't go any lower. In fact, it's kind of been trending the opposite sure. here for a while. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you love like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273 that's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273 so i think that it's going to come from those sales commissions and you have people that make half a million dollars a year or more and sales commission, I'm not saying everyone does, but there's a decent amount out there. That You're talking about resi sales. Yeah, yes, yeah. for sure. Even is if it, it was 150000 yeah. a year, like where else are you going to go for sure. a job in a sales-based job yeah. that pays that? I mean, that's why you're seeing so many people move to residential sales. Isn't it per home? It could be in the Northeast. Like the revenue that they receive or the commission is like four to 6000 per home. Is that off or is that? I think it's actually low. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, I see a lot of data and pretty much a lot of data. Right now, we're seeing average sales commissions at 26%. And honestly, I don't think it's a coincidence that it matches with the federal investment tax rate. (laughs) So absent rising interest rates, I think the sales commission, because of the IRA, actually would have went back to 30. Yes. Okay. But because of rising interest rates, it might get suppressed back down. Because there's nowhere else to take that money from the value. Yeah. The other thing is the IRA, that, and we'll say IRA, it's the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed by this administration that gave a 10-year extension on the federal investment tax credit and did a bunch of other things, was very favorable for TPO companies. So what I always say, well, there's a few things that I believe, but I think loans are a fine product, but leases are now going to be better because there's ways that financially that large companies, whether it's Sundance, Sonova, you know, IGS, there's yeah. ways these companies can monetize the tax that a consumer can't. So like if you're a homeowner and you pay $3.50, 
for the system and it's a $35,000 system, you get 30% of that back on your tax sure. journal, assuming that you can absorb it, right, in one year. But if I'm TPO provider, if I paid somebody $350 to build it, but all my auditors tell me that that system, because of the cost of power, is worth $450, now I'm going to make an extra $0.30 cents a watt because yeah. I'm going to sell the tax at $450. It's just called step up and it's totally justifiable. And you're arbitraging that difference because it's an arm's length transaction to the bank. They're saying, well, this system's worth 450 and therefore I'm going to take the tax credit on that. And the other thing is you can take the depreciation, sure. makers, which is accelerated depreciation. There's all these other ways that you can monetize the system that the homeowner doesn't do. So therefore, as long as that tax credit is high, it's going to skew towards leases, I think. But leases don't work in every market. So Certainly, I don't believe they'll go over 50%. I do think you're going to see a rise from the estimated 23%, I think, 2021 finished at. I think it'll rise up from that, maybe to 40%. as a little bit of a guess, a dark throw. But in areas where leases work, and there's a whole getting into that, I think it's going to be more popular. Okay. And the homeowner doesn't have any money in pocket, instant savings. There's a lot of advantages. Obviously, there's some disadvantages as well, as all things. I think a prepaid PPA is something that I'm passionate about that makes a ton of sense. So yeah. if somebody else owns it for the first five years, they take all the tax, the step oh, up, that's everything right. that's you huge. can't take, and then you just pay all the power up front. Yeah. So it looks to you, customer, like a normal solar loan. It's just you're getting a discount because you don't own it in the first five years and the system flips to you. Yeah. There's some complexity in that. It's not as easy as it sounds, but it is doable and it's a great structure because I mean, you've been around long enough. How often does a solar array randomly stop working after year five or year one even? So you have no maintenance yeah. obligations if someone else owns it. So if you can shift, you know that if something's going to get yeah. wrong, it's usually the first 30 days. Sure. Right? After that, there's no moving parts. Yeah. It's a very elegant solution. It just works. If you can shift that maintenance obligation from the first year, which you yeah. are in this deferred ownership or whatever you want to call it, kind of structure or prepaid power purchase agreement, I think there's just so much value there to the consumer. And lastly, I'll say just around the South, like the interest rates aren't going to hurt Resi. If you look at the energy cost versus inflation, I think it peaked in like 80 and maybe 95, 2000. There's some cool charts out there you can look at. But we are now in a period where energy rates are rising much faster than inflation, even though inflation was so high, that's sure. all you hear about. So what does that mean? That means, well, my 4% increase in whatever it works out to to then consumer, you know, I'm paying 4% now uh -huh. instead of 0.9% for the same dealer fee. Well, that doesn't affect your monthly payment more than the doubling of your energy for costs sure. over the last two years. I know in my utility, it's up 80%. It's wild. I was paying all in 10.6 cents last October, and now it's close to 18 yeah. cents. I didn't think we'd get to that level, honestly, in yeah. the next five years. That's a very drastic sure. rise. And again, there's charts that you can find online. You can type it into Google. I didn't bring my laptop. I should have. <laughs> I check it on the slide. But you can put it in there, and you can see in 21 what the rising interest rates or rising cost of energy is relative to inflation. And it's very high, yeah. not in a good way. So that just means that you're still going to, by virtue of energy rates going out more than interest rates, you could still put in that solar and you're going to save the same amount 
because your energy or more, more because your energy rate more, is yeah. going up higher than yeah. what the interest rate is. And that's obviously allowing for more renewable energy development, specifically when we talk about solar. It's also allowing more natural gas and fracking to happen because now they're incentivized at these higher costs to drill and frack. So it's interesting what you're seeing. One thing I would say, there has been at least a lot of innovation. We were talking about this a little bit about software. I think people are also being more aware of their energy consumption. That's helped with like Nest and things like that. But just going back to another point that you made, now panels are getting smaller or they're higher wattages than before. Bifacial, at least in the utility or commercial, is pretty accepted. Also, single access trackers in cold environments with snow, that's helping like increase the production, which then helps obviously the numbers. So it's interesting because, and then obviously as batteries get more efficient, software solutions that are able to monetize not behind the meter, but front of the meter as time goes on and take advantage of ancillary services and all these things, that creates more income stream as well. Going back to technology, service side, I have hesitation with buying an electric car because of lithium and the flammability of lithium. It's funny, I went to a Cooney energy thing with the FDNY, so they just showed lithium batteries on fire and there's like zoning where it can't be in New York City at a certain distance. Firefighters have been trained to basically let batteries just kind of burn out, even in cars as well. Would love to get your perspective. I think there's some new car company that's actually using another technology outside of lithium. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in the electric car space. Also, the infrastructure, which we talked about before, of charging stations and Tesla basically leading that. Yeah, there's a lot. There's so much to talk about. We could talk about five episodes right there on that topic. We could go on and on about it. I don't know what your thoughts are with some of the things. Yeah, like I said, there's a lot to unpack there. And I was trying not to think of an answer before we got to the question because I wanted to listen intently. I think, you know, my time at IGS, this goes back seven years ago. We were piloting the concept. We We started with recycled BMW i8 batteries. The concept was we want to give every homeowner a free battery. This is back before like this yeah. was a thing, before storage was cool. I saw what I just was doing with like smart hot water heaters and things like that and how you could aggregate them and put it into the ancillary markets. I was like, well, what is the payback? Oh, you did some calcs and you're using these batteries that otherwise would have been landfilled. By the time we piloted it, basically all the Reg D and all the other ancillary markets came down so far. Oh, no crashed or value but for people that are thinking futuristically, and I think that's what's going on here, to me, it's all about scale. It's about accumulating enough of these batteries in each different section of the grid where you could deploy them in the future because this is going to be a market. It's yeah. going to come back again, whether it's frequency regulation or demand. So in other words, for people just kind of high level, the grid has to stay at 60 hertz. And every time you kick on a manufacturing facility, if it's large enough, it can affect the local grid. So you need to instantly be able to give or take power. Yeah, And that's what batteries can do that other technologies can't. Now, the other big component of that, and it's more predominant in like California, is that in the hottest times of the year, generally, is when the grid moves because of air conditioning and other things. 
So you need to, again, be able to instantly inject more power or turn things off, which is how you can sometimes get money for demand response, meaning the demand's high, we need you to take power offline. But if you own all these batteries and you're able to use them and deploy them in all these ways, it's a tremendous value to the grid. Specifically speaking about battery technologies, I don't think I'm an expert here. I do think that Tesla just changed their battery configuration. Actually, my neighbor, I'll give him a shout out, was telling me about this yesterday from lithium ion to lithium lead. And I guess there's some advantages there. But I think the instances are so few and far between <laughs> yeah. that it's very That's true. safe. It is very safe. You know, the media tends to focus on one outlier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on fire, you know, and I mean, sure. Well, you know how many tractor trailers you see that are oh, on fire? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I might have 150 caught on fire once I was <laughs> driving down to, to Ohio. So it can happen to any car. And sure, yeah, I don't want to dismiss that it burns hotter. It's harder to put fire on the takes. But at the end of the day, I would say the number of incidents is so low that statistically, it's a venture guess that it's still safer than any other fuel. Yeah. And what about people paying attention when they drive yeah. <laughs> and not be texting and do, how many people get into accidents because they're not paying attention the to Tesla the Tesla solves that, right? Yeah, the self-driving capability of a Tesla is pretty amazing. I know I'm biased because I'm a former Solar City Tesla employee. Shout out, Elon. Love what you're doing. <laughs> if you want to come on the podcast. Yeah, if you want to come on the podcast, I'll make sure to have some extra whiskey for you like Joe Rogan did. But just going back to that point, is like really the driving capability and how advanced it is. People might not know this, but in the future, people will not be driving anymore. It's funny because my cousin lives in Mountain View where Google is, and it's normal to have the Google self-driving cars all over the place. People don't realize in the future, we're not going to be driving because the human era is obviously the biggest cause of accidents. I've said many times, and my kids are getting older now, my youngest, I'm still predicting that they won't need a car. And my youngest now is about to be 10, so he's nine. When's the last time you rented a car? I do maybe like once a year now, but usually I Uber. Uber, for sure. Car ownership's not the same. I think when you reimagine cities, what do you need a car for? And you know what I love? This is just personal myself, is when I'm able to take a car somewhere, it actually saves me time because I'm able to do other work. I'm able to sleep and recover. From things that, you know, I'm always on the road and traveling. So I kind of like having a car service or using public transportation. So I tend to be near a major transportation. We're here in Jersey City, New Jersey, where there's so much transportation outside of a car. Most people don't have cars. I would say I took the 305. Sorry. Last time I came in to the city, which wasn't that long ago, I mean, I took the train in from Harrisburg. It's amazing how productive you can be. It takes oh, yeah. Wisconsin longer, but there's not traffic. What about the networking on the train? Oh, yeah. Let, I sat next to a couple of people and asked me what I did. And I was yeah. Like, oh, I am that too. It's, that's only certain people that yeah. have that talk to people, you know? Yeah, for that's, sure. For you, you talk to everybody. I talk to so everyone. But so that's an interesting thing because obviously our podcast is not just about solar, but solar entrepreneurship. Literally, I'll always pay extra to go business class or first class when it comes to, and I'll try to go on the Excella. And it's amazing. Like I met Ted Leonessis, who's the owner of the Washington Capitals and just on a seller from DC to New York. He started, I guess, AOL. He also owns the hockey team as well. Oh, he owns the Wizards, right? And then the other Washington Capitals in DC. And I think he's actually trying to buy the commanders, but I think Jeff Bezos and Jay-Z are leading that. But it's interesting. I met Tom Ridge's head of coronavirus security. 
she was sitting next to me and we just started talking. So, you know, you never know. You have to put yourself out there, start talking to people, building relationships, as you know. That's what it's all about. The other thing I'll say about batteries is there's a lot there. But to circle back on like the commercial side, and that was always a challenge in New York too, where they need batteries for demand response and other things. As you mentioned, you can't use lithium ion, but so I got to interview, you'd mentioned SPI did a series of interviews of different people in the industry that have different areas of expertise. We can chat about. Yeah, that would be interesting to talk about. RE Plus is the biggest conference. It was formerly SPI in September in Anaheim, one of my favorite places, but other people prefer Las Vegas, which will be next year. But Nate was part of the Suncast podcast. And you were doing interviews there. And I guess you spoke to someone who was talking about specifically batteries, yeah, battery technology. the industry poll. So I tried to make it about, there's a couple of themes even in this conversation because I think they're relevant. I talked to the owner of Yada Energy. And oh, I spoke I didn't, to Yada before, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know exactly what they did prior to this. And since then, I've had a chance to look into it. And I mean, what they're doing is really slick. It makes a ton of sense. So on a commercial solar array, Generally speaking, if you're on a roof somewhere, it's very archaic, but they use ballast blocks, which are paving stones. It's like yeah. a cinder block. And that's what weighs the system down. And they sure. strategically place these. Some panels get more, some get less to handle wind loads. What they figured out is, well, we need storage and we need paving blocks. So why don't we just use one battery per panel effectively, or you can string them however you want. And then because of the configuration, it gets a little bit outside of my area of expertise, even though I was a chemical engineer. It's been a long time before I, since I've used those muscles. But how it works, I guess, is you can't get these thermal events because there's sure. not enough power per battery. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So now you have safety. You're doubling down on you don't need to carry stones in, which is kind of silly. It's dual purpose. They're modular, so you can just snap them all together and yeah. have as much backup. You can add more later. So if anyone wants to go check it out, but these are the kind of simple solutions that I think when I was talking to the CEO, to me, there's just elegance in simplicity. Like it's so simple. It's like one of those, why didn't I think about that? When you boil ideas down and they're that easy, I think those are generally the best ones, right? Oh, for sure. How does that not exist already? Yeah. Why didn't no one ever think of this? But I'm sure people have thought about it, but maybe there hasn't been a good solution to it. I agree. And it's complex for sure, but... I think what's going to be challenging for new technologies, this is my long-winded way of saying that's a really elegant solution. Yeah. To get rid of lithium ion is going to be very challenging. Oh, for sure at this point. It's bankable. Yeah. So the other aspect of all this outside of engineering is what will banks lend it? What's financeable? Yeah. And that's just the technology. I mean, that took time for it to get exactly. to that point. And now you have it at scale with gigafactories right. and other things. And so it's the accepted technology. Is there something better out there? Probably. I mean, can it be created? Certainly. But how long is it going to take yeah. to get adopted? At that point, you're going to have so many lithium ion batteries deployed. It's going to be really hard to overtake. Not that I'm discouraging. Absolutely. We should keep exploring and searching for better and better technologies. But the bankability aspect of getting a project funded and approved is going to be a big hurdle for new batteries. It would be great if you could briefly talk about your podcast, the Limitless Podcast. I feel like we could have another four or five interviews. I want to do another podcast real soon on your predictions going forward, which we kind of a little bit talked about. But I know we talked now that it's the end of the year and everyone wants predictions of what they see. 
But can you talk to our audience, the Mavericks, about your podcast and how it started? How's it going? What have you learned from the experience? I've learned a ton. So I've been always encouraging it. You know, I started with just a whiteboard and started posting. I'll just keep the story short because I'm pretty sure I've told it on this podcast a few times. But I started posting just little quips and then little quotes every week of things I found interesting, got a little bit of a following. And I think you encouraged me to record it, which oh, I yeah. did, and then turn it into a video. I know Miko was very encouraging as well. And I started just a four-minute video. Every Monday I post, I've only missed one. I think I'm on episode, this last one was episode 90. Yeah. Appreciation and how you can show appreciation. Actively listen, send thank you notes, shine a light on someone, make connections and offer help. It's interesting, like Nate actually does send thank you notes. I know like I donated to the, you know, the cause that you have with, yeah. And then I was surprised to receive a picture of you on the bike and then writing thank you note because no one really does that anymore. And then that was the first thing I looked in the mail because I'm used to seeing bills or advertisements. So and email so cluttered, like people actually will focus on a thank you note because I get a thousand emails a day and people are expecting me to reply, you know, though I don't know who they are. <laughs> I don't know about that. Though. I remember, yeah. yeah, every single person I donated, I did a handwritten note of me crossing the finish line. There was a hundred mile bike. They don't call it a race, but just a hundred mile bike event for cancer research. It was a great cause, but yes. So I started this video and it's just changes how you think about the world in general, because mostly it's answering questions for my kids, something they asked me. It's hundred percent why I started it. But also it's just all week because I do it every Monday. Like people are like, oh, do you film a bunch of them? And you could see like last one I did, I was in Texas. I did them for- Yeah, you were outside, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was at my VRBO. I was with a bunch of other people. Like, hey, we got to go to breakfast. Hang on, I got to record my video. (laughs) And I do it that way on purpose because- that's what gives it the meaning is that it's so relevant to somebody and they know it and I know it. And sometimes it's veiled. Sometimes I'll just call it out if I know they're comfortable with it. But it's just been a lot of fun. It's added a lot of value. And I learned, I taught myself how to edit it and it's not perfect, but I like it. Someday I might hire someone to do it. But like I said, it's just been a tremendous blessing in my life. Just looking for positive. I think my kids respond to it really well. They take feedback, whether it's criticism or praise much better when they have time to digest it. I'm more clear. Sure. In, your thought. In the moment, yeah, for sure. Right. Of answering a question and it's like sitting and thinking. And it's also kind of my gratitude journal, right? Yeah. I know people all the time, like, it's funny, it's getting and just organically a little bigger, you know, I get a few thousand views, but I'll have people reach out to me now. And it used to be, hey, I really needed to hear that. That was awesome. Or this, that. It makes you feel really good to get that feedback. Or like, you see somebody at SPI and are like, oh, you're the Monday motivation guy, because that's what yeah. I used to call it. Actually, it was funny. I was on the rooftop at a happy hour in Anaheim. And I was with a colleague and she says, I know that person, I think. And I was like, you want me to go ask him? Yeah. And because she's sitting there trying to like, how do I know this guy? So I went out and I said, hey, excuse me, do I know you? Because you're Nate Joe and I. I said, yeah. oh, so I do know you. He goes, no, I follow you on LinkedIn. Yeah. I watch your podcast. I'm like, yes. oh, it's those moments that are so cool, right? <laughs> but now I'm getting more and more people reach out to me and they'll say, was this last one about me? <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> like, that shows how relatable. Yeah, for sure. Know? If everyone could do me a favor, if you could do one thing for me, just go on, check it out on Spotify. It's called the Limitless Podcast with Nathan Giovanelli. 
If you like it, leave me a five-star review. I really appreciate it. Otherwise, I think most people consume it on LinkedIn. I do post it on Insta because that's how my kids get it. Yeah. But that's the only reason why I do that. And it's on YouTube because it's also on my website, which is jovanelli.com or jovanellllc.io. You can get it there as well. And you'll see that I've only missed one week. It was purposeful because I was with my kids in Disney. And yeah. I was thinking about filming it in line with sure. the kids. I was like, you know what? It's for them. So... Yeah. That's not going to do them any justice. I'm here to spend time with them. And I took that week off, but I haven't missed any other week. And like I said, to pre-film them all, I think you lose that element of this is relevant oh, for sure. for this reason. It's kind of that journaling aspect. Yeah. Well, Nate, this has been an amazing interview. I appreciate you coming on as my co-host. We have like after this conversation, like four or five additional sort of topics and definitely like your predictions for next year sure. would be a great one considering now it's the end of the year in December. As always, I appreciate the Solar Mavericks for your support. That's what we call our listeners. Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar developer and consulting firm. If you believe our content's adding value, please give us a five-star review, just like the Limitless podcast that Nate has on Spotify, YouTube, and Instagram. Thank you again for listening. And thank you again, Nate. I appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangen and Kevin Y. Brown. 